Our Bible reading this morning is from Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah 6, and we'll read the first eight verses. If you've got one of the Red Pew Bibles, it's page 690, 690. So we read from Isaiah chapter 6, verse 1, page 690 in the Pew Bibles. This is God's Word. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated on a throne, high and exalted, and the train of His robe filled the temple. Above Him were seraphs, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, And with two they were flying, and they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of His glory. At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and thresholds shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. Woe to me, I cried, I am ruined. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the the Lord Almighty. Then one of the seraphs flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. With it he touched my mouth and said, See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin atoned for. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? And I said, Here am I, send me. Well, please do open your Bibles with me again to Isaiah chapter 6. As we think about this subject, as we have been working our way through the summer, we have been thinking about this, the doctrine of God, about who God is about His attributes, about discovering our God. And this morning as we come to God's holiness, if you're looking to read more about this subject, because uh, as we keep saying every week, we're only going to be able to scratch the surface of this. This is, uh, th- these attributes are huge uh, aspects of study. Uh, but for those who, who would like to, R.C. Sproul has a little book, uh, The Holiness of God, and it's a super book. If you want to think more about this, uh, I really do recommend Uh, picking up this book. I'll leave it at the front, and if you want to look at it before you go, you can. So, we're thinking about the holiness of God. When I was around 10 years of age, I had the wonderful experience of going to the theater of dreams. Uh, And if you're a football fan, some people are shaking their heads already. The, the, (laughs) the, The theater of dreams is where Manchester United play. And here I was, this little boy outside the theater of dreams, and it was huge, the big glass front. And then my my great uncle, he was taking me in, and you walk to the turnstiles, and you go through these busy corridors, and then you come up a little set of steps, and out you come into Old Trafford. And the the grass is pristine, it's greener than green. The the white lines around the edge of the pitch, they're they're crystal white. The net is is there. You're in this this theater where where great memories and great moments throughout history have happened. Great players have played. And there you stand as as a little boy. And for me, I was in awe as I stood there. 
looking at all of the, the various scenes around me in Old Trafford. It's a special, it was a special moment for me in a special place trying to absorb all of the emotions. And perhaps for you, and for many people here, Old Trafford would not make you feel like that. Uh, the theater of dreams would not be so special for you. But there would be other places, maybe a great cathedral that you've been to, that you have seen, that you have literally stood in awe of. In silence, you have just observed its greatness. Maybe it's in the, the Swiss Alps, which Nigel will be able to enjoy soon. Maybe it's at the Grand Canyon or the Niagara Falls. We stand in great theaters, and we're speechless. We're in awe. We're struck by the magnitude, the greatness, the scale, and you're overcome. When a human being comes into an experience with the holiness of God, our triune God, the great I am, the one who was and is and is to come, you will be overcome. Whenever we stand face to face with the holiness of God, whenever we read passages like Isaiah 6 and Revelation chapter 4, the holiness of our God should do something inside of us. So here's my question for each of us here, each soul here today. When was the last time that you were amazed by God? When was the last time you were amazed? We sing about it, don't we? I stand amazed in the presence of Jesus the Nazarene. When was the last time we stood amazed in the presence of our God? whenever we look upon him and his greatness, amazed at who he is and what he has done. And actually, I think for lots of us, if we're honest this morning, it's probably a very long time since we've been amazed by Jesus, by our God. And why is that? Well, here's what we try to do. We try to take God and we try to shrink him down, don't we? We try to shrink God down and we think of him basically as someone just like us perhaps a little bigger, but that's all. And we want to be that big. We, we try and kick God off the throne. We shrink Him down. We try to replace Him, but God isn't like that. What is God? God is infinite. All of the various attributes that we've been thinking of, if you stack them up week after week after week, we see that God is not like us. We gaze this morning then into the very nature of who our God is, and we should be overwhelmed. We should be transformed. Here's, here's what John Calvin says. He says that people are never duly touched with their insignificance until they have contrasted themselves with the majesty of God. Calvin here is talking about God's holiness. We'll never see ourselves as insignificant until we contrast ourselves, not with the version of God that we depict, not with this, this, this little version that we construct, but until we see His majesty, we will not see how insignificant and lowly we are. So today, as we look on the holiness of God, we, we trust that it will do a work in us and that what we will respond in worship and in service. So three things for us, and the first is this. God is holy. What does that mean? God is holy. 
Well, whenever we think about it, we, we often think that God is pure. That's what we've been chatting with the boys and girls. He's free from every sin. And to an extent, that is true, but it's not the full meaning of God being holy. You see, it also means for Him to be separate or to be a, a cut apart or a cut above, sometimes we say, that He is totally separate from us. But again, to say that God is pure and to say that He is separate, it doesn't fully grasp what holiness is. If we were to think about holiness accurately, it covers all aspects of His greatness, all aspects of God's perfection. It is the, the Godness of God. That's how J.I. Packer describes it, the Godness of God. It's all of His attributes together as one. He is holy. He is pure. He is set apart. He is not like us. He is transcendently separate. He's so far above us. He's so far beyond us. He is almost totally foreign to us. Sometimes people describe it like this. It's, it's like an ant trying to understand a human. It's so different the creature and the creator. God is not just a, a bigger version of us. He is not like us, and yet He loves us. And so, God is set apart by His glory and for His glory. Whenever we talk about God and His holiness, we're talking about His entire being, every aspect of it, Another theologian says this, he says, it is the luster and the glory of his other perfections. It is the attribute of attributes. So when we think of God being holy, we're thinking of him being distinctly higher and greater and more glorious than we have ever known. He is pure. He is just. He is merciful. He is full of wrath. And in His holiness, it's, that, it's a little like light, and light never, a light that never varies, a light without darkness. It's unimaginably bright, a light brighter than the sun. He is the great I Am. And what happens whenever Moses encounters the holiness of God in Exodus? You remember as he, he appears, uh, the Lord appears to Moses in the burning bush, and we are told in Scripture that the place we're on now standest is holy ground. And Isaiah records for us here this incredible vision of God's holiness. What has happened? Look at chapter 6 and verse 1. In the year that King Uzziah died, what does that mean? Well, King Uzziah had been on the throne for 52 years. 52 years he had ruled. He had ruled as a good king. He had done what was right in the sight of the Lord largely. Towards the end of his time, he starts to get things wrong. But largely, he had been a good king. 52 years on the throne. I looked this up. How far back would we have to go in our prime ministers to go back 52 years? You're starting to scroll back in your mind thinking, who, who is it? Who is it? Harold Macmillan. Okay. And then all of the prime ministers since, 14 different prime ministers in 52 years. 
But for Israel, they had had one king. And so what happens in verse 1 of chapter 6 is Isaiah is mourning. And he goes up to the temple. He's looking for consolation. He's in a time of grief. When we are struggling in life, when our Christian walk seems to have stalled, when we're weary and we feel worn out, when all seems helpless and hopeless, when we lose our way, when our church loses its way, when a denomination loses its way, what do we need? We need to see the holiness of God afresh. And Isaiah in verse 1, what does he see? In the year that King Uzziah died, as he looks for consolation, as he looks for the Lord's help in a hopeless situation, he sees the Lord. The king is dead. But Isaiah meets the eternal king sitting on the throne. Look at this with me, this wonderful image. He sees the Lord, and there's two different words here, or two different uh, type of text used for the Lord, if you can see it there with me. Verse 1, it's a capital L, then a small O-R-D. And then in verse 3, you'll notice that it's holy, holy, holy is the Lord, all capitals. Well, there's two names being used here for the Lord in Hebrew. The first is Adonai, which simply means the sovereign, the king. So, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the, the true king sitting upon a throne. That's good news for us. It's good news for everyone, isn't it? The throne is occupied. It's not vacant. And what does he see? He sees that this throne is high and lifted up. It is exalted above all else. No one comes close to him. He's in the lofty place of honor. He's the sovereign one. And then the train of his robe filled the temple. We're not used to people wearing trains, really, apart from, apart from brides or a king or a queen. But what do they, what do they show us? Well, the train of a, of a bride shows and elongates her beauty, doesn't it? The train speaks of the person's importance. With, without the, the bride at the wedding, there would be no wedding. The train leads people to the bride. It leads people to the king or to the queen. And what, is, what does Isaiah see? He sees the train and the train of his robe that filled the temple. It's not just 10 feet or 50 feet long. It is large enough to fill the entire temple, a statement about God's authority and His glory. And then these creatures, the seraphim. I want us to get out of our mind's eye this idea that these are some sort of little cherub-like things, that they're some sort of like small cuddly toy or, or little ornament. These are seraphim. Now, now, what do we know about the seraphim? Well, we're told here in verse 2 that they had six wings. With two, they cover their face. They, they cannot bear to be in the, the purity, the, the radiance of God's glory, His holiness. And so, their faces are shielded from His, His holiness. Their feet are covered as a mark of respect for the Creator. And with two wings they fly. 
And then they cry to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. And what happens, verse 4, the foundations of the threshold shook. What has power to shake the foundations? Not some sort of little creature that's cute and cuddly. What would shake the foundations of Hill Street today? Well, a Chinook, if it flew over us, would shake the foundations, wouldn't it? Or a jet airplane, as it, as it ripped across the sky above us, would shake the very foundations of this place. Or perhaps the, those great rulers that, that put out the tarmac. I was in Union College one day, and we were sitting in class, and our very classroom started to shake. We didn't know what was going on outside. Uh, we thought there was an earthquake in Northern Ireland. Uh, and here, the, the, the very classroom's shaking, and we look out the window, and there's one of those huge rollers going at like two mile an hour past the window, shaking the very foundations. These are huge creatures, and they cry aloud. They are so big, so powerful, that with their voice, the foundations shake. It's like the, the, the sound barrier is broken. You know that boom that comes from a jet that breaks it? Holy, holy, holy. Why three times? Well, in Hebrew, they don't say something was big, and then it was very big, and it was gigantic. They just use the same word three times to magnify it, to, to show how great it is. So, holy, 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 like describing something that was red being red, very red, very, very red. The triune God. And it's not just God the Father here present in this passage, because look at verse 8 with me. Do you see what is said? And when I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send and who will go for us? It's the plural. And so our Trinity, the triune God, is here in Isaiah. That is what Isaiah sees and who Isaiah sees. And we know that to be true because in John's gospel and in chapter 12, he says that Isaiah saw Christ's glory. And also Paul will refer to how how Isaiah used the term of the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, in, in his prophecies. And so, this is to say that Isaiah sees the triune God, our holy God, the Godhead, pure and separate, and he beholds him. But what does he feel in this moment? As he steps into this great theater, as he steps into the throne room of heaven, and as his heart starts to beat, and perhaps his hands start to get sweaty, what does he feel like? He feels like he's about to disintegrate. Woe is me. Our God is holy, and we are in great danger. That's our second point. We are in great danger. The more important the person that we meet, the more danger that we're in. If we had an audience with, with the President of the United States, and we were talking to him, and we happened to go like this to reach inside our coat pocket, every member of his security detail would be ready. And if we were to pull out, and I didn't plan that, but I have a Willers original inside my pocket. <laughs> if we pulled out a Willers, it might be all right. But if we pulled out something that was dark and black, we, we wouldn't have a, a time to speak or to react. They would gun us down, wouldn't they? 
And think about years and years ago, whenever you were in the presence of a king or in the presence of a queen, they could simply declare, off with your head, hang them. The greater power the person has, the greater danger we are in. And here Isaiah approaches the Holy of Holies. He approaches our God, and he is in great danger. Look at verse 5. Woe is me. I am lost. I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. It's just like Adam in the garden, isn't it? Adam, in the the presence of a holy God, what does he do? He runs. He tries to hide from God's holiness. And so, as as Isaiah stands before the holy God, it's like his holiness is an x-ray machine, and it sees everything in Isaiah's life. It sees every sin. It's all laid bare. And where does his attention go? It goes straight to his mouth. Here I am, a man of unclean lips. Why his mouth? Well, because the mouth is the spout, as it were, of the heart. From what's in our hearts, it flows out through our mouth. It identifies us as being sinful. And so the seraphim goes, look at verse 6, and they take a coal, and they touch his mouth with the coal. In verse 7, your guilt is taken away, and your sin is atoned for. Fire purifies in this moment. The fire makes a dealing with a sin. The fire works to purify things that are of substance, doesn't it? We don't use fire to, to purify our, our dirty clothes, be senseless. But we do use fire to purify gold, don't we? Something that's of substance, something that will last. And so here we see fire being used to purify God's servant. As the Lord's holiness exposes his sin as he demands justice. Justice must be served in the presence of a holy God. And so there's a payment made as this coal burns his lips and purifies him. And what does this point us to? As this coal is taken from the altar, it shows us and points forward the one that would have to come and who would have to purify us from sin. The holiness of God means that we have been separated from Him in the Garden of Eden, torn apart from Him. We hide from His holiness. And so it points us forward, not the one who would come with a coal from the altar, but one who would be a lamb who would lay Himself upon the altar. the Lamb who would be slain, pointing forward to the one who would come and who would have the Lord's holiness and who would be able to bear the Lord's wrath upon him and satisfy his justice. You see, God's holiness means that we are in great danger, but the beauty of Scripture is that God sends his only Son, his holy Son, to live the perfect life, to be fully obedient and then to take the heat of intense suffering for us. Jesus would be burned up in that sense, wouldn't he? The fire of God's wrath would descend upon Christ. The heat of the wrath of a holy God would burn upon the one who is our substitute and who is our sacrifice. 
You see, God's holiness demands that He is just, and His justice demands that sin is paid for, and the only one that could pay for the sin is the Holy Lamb of God. And so Christ stands, and He takes the heat. He takes the wrath. He takes the heavy hand of a holy God upon him. He was struck in our place, and our cry is, woe is me. Woe is me. We tremble in fear. We, we lay ourselves down. Revelation chapter 6, just after that, that vision in chapter 4 that Nigel read for us, in chapter 6 of Revelation, it says this, the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone slave and free, whenever they're met with this vision of the holy God, they hide themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling for the mountains and the rocks fall on us and hide us from the face of Him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb for the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? Would there be one found in Hill Street that could stand in the presence of a holy God? No, there wouldn't be. That's the whole point. No one can stand apart from the perfect man, Jesus Christ. Our sin keeps us away. Our sin makes us hide from a holy God. We run away into the darkness. We run away into the caves and into the hiding places in the rocks. We cry out that the rocks would cover us and hide us from the presence of a holy God because we know that we will disintegrate in His presence. But that's why Jesus came, isn't it? Jesus came to do what? to call us sinners out of the hiding places, out of the places in the rock, out of the places that we run into darkness. He comes to, to call to seek and to save those who were lost, to seek and go after those who have, who have ran away, just like Adam did in the garden. He comes to call just like his father did. Where are you? Come to me. Be saved repent and believe. Jesus comes to make a covering, just like His Father did for Adam and Eve in the garden. He comes to give us a covering of His own righteousness that will shield us in the presence of a holy God, to put His clothes on us. On us. And so, this is great news that the Holy Son comes and calls us out of hiding into His presence, into love and into purity, so that we can stand in the very throne room and adore our God. God is holy. We are in great danger without Christ. And finally, how should we respond? What, what should God's holiness do for us this morning? It shouldn't just be an exercise where we have downloaded information but as we gaze upon the greatness of our God, as we consider the seraphim that call holy, 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 as we see Him on His throne high and lifted up, 
our response is simply to repent, to worship, and to serve our God. As each of us here today are confronted with God's holiness, how will we respond? You can run away, and you can hide, and you can distract yourself, and you can try and cover your face and think that it will all be okay, but Luke chapter 12 tells us that Jesus will come, and He will come with fire, and you will be found in that last day, and you will face eternal judgment, or we can run to Jesus because that's the model here, isn't it? As Isaiah sees his own sin, what does he say? Woe is me. He, he bows down before the Lord. He, he repents. I am a man of unclean lips. I dwell in the midst of unclean people. He repents of his sin. He owns his sin. And then as he repents and as he bows down in worship, what happens in verse 8? Who will go? And then he says, here I am. Send me repentance, worship, and then service. Lord, I see you. I see how great you are. I bow before you, and I say I will serve you all the days that you give me. He worships as he trembles. And it's exactly the same in Revelation chapter 4, isn't it? As the, as the elders come off their thrones, what do they do? They bow down before the Lord and they cast their crowns before Him, and they say, worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. The holiness of God launches the seraphim to cry out in praise and in worship, and so it humbles men to serve God for His glory. We are wrecks, but Christ is worthy. The one who saves us, a people who are torn apart by sin. We are covered in the grime of sin, and yet all glory is due to our Savior. We are the creature. He's the creator. We are lost. He comes to find. And so with this we close. Our response in light of God's holiness is to cast our crowns before Him, to cling on to our Savior, to say, Jesus, without you, I will be vaporized in the presence of a holy God, and to see what He does for us again with fresh eyes. As Isaiah would say in chapter 53, and these words I trust today will be sweeter than ever before. He was pierced for our transgressions, and He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon Him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with His wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to His own way, and the Lord has laid on Him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed, and He was afflicted, 
yet he opened not his mouth, like a lamb led to the slaughter, and like a sheep before his shears is silent. He opened not his mouth. Worthy is the lamb who was slain for us. And so soon, we will stand before a holy God, and we will either cast our crowns before Him, lost in wonder, love, and praise, or we will be cast out from His presence forevermore. So, what is our response? Repent, worship, and serve the holy God. Leviticus chapter 11, verse 44, for I am the Lord your God. Consecrate yourselves, therefore, and be holy for I am holy. Amen.